0: Lauren Elkin's essays have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times Book Review, Freeze, and the Times Literary Supplement, and she is contributing editor at the White Review. A native New Yorker, she moved to Paris in 2004, currently living on the right bank after years on the left. She can generally be found ambling around Belleville, which is where we are right now. to talk about Flaneurs, Women Walk the City in Paris, New York, Tokyo, Venice, and London. Welcome to The Bibliophile.
1: <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming to my house to do it. It's a pleasure.
0: <laughs> Flaneurs has been described as a memoir, a history, a biography, social commentary, travel writing... Literary criticism that gives the bookseller a bit of a challenge as to where to put it. (laughs) Yeah Why did you choose to incorporate all these different Mm. types of writing?
1: Yeah Uh, That's a good question. I mean it just sort of came out that way It was less of a conscious choice and more just sort of giving myself permission to follow the narrative where it went so I guess that it might be Related to the fact that it's a book about wandering in cities. I mean that's the sort of you know obvious answer is like well If the book is about wandering aimlessly, perhaps the narrative should sort of digress aimlessly, Mm -hmm. which is not entirely accurate reflection of the the writing process and the revision process. There was a real sense of every chapter having its own kind of focus. So there was a city and a major figure in most cases, and then a kind of key that I would cast it in. um, So like the idea of being stuck inside in Tokyo, or the idea of obedience in Venice, or revolution in the second George Sand chapter. So there is a sense that it could, because I gave myself permission to just meander, just turn into a collection of like things that Lauren thinks are interesting. But I had to be really careful in the writing and the revising to kind of give it attention, give it a shape, make it feel as if it were sort of accumulating into something in addition to being, you know, a a sort of meander through a topic.
0: The um, term flaneur Mm -hmm. has been defined as an idler, a a dawdling observer usually found in cities. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could expand on that a bit and also talk to us about what are the benefits of being a Mm -hmm. flaneur?
1: Oh, gosh. Okay. So the the term flaneur is one that I think is is kind of a power trope in the way that we talk about the city. I mean, if you just look on Twitter at a kind of random sampling of urban Twitter accounts, you'll find a lot of the time people sort of self-identifying as a flaneur. Flaneur likes cupcakes, like that that sort of, you know, very millennial relationship to the city and to what we do in the city. Um, I think it captures a way that we like to think about um, being curious about the city. And maybe maybe there's a sort of intellectual, like anti-capitalist idea behind our taking up of the flaneur, this idea that we're not going to be subject to the clock or to appointments. We're just going to sort of take the day as it comes. So I think there is something very attractive about the idea of the flaneur. There's, at the same time, this might speak to the second half of your question, the benefits of, of being a flaneur. There is this sense that, some people have access to that kind of mode of being in the city that other people don't. And for the purposes of my book, I was drawing the line between men and women, or men sort of historically having more access to the city in a, in a kind of casual way than women have historically had.
0: Plus they've got more money. Like you have to yeah, have money to be exactly. able to do that. So right? I think
1: that, that's the, you know, I, I drew the split male-female because of this historic figure of the flaneur, but I think you could, there are all sorts of other sort of intersectional ways in which you could say, like, it's a question of money, it's a question of ability, it's a question of, you know, race. There are all sorts of ways in which the way that we present in the city allows us to navigate it more or less um, unhampered, or allows us to kind of disappear into the crowd. So that's a benefit of being a flaneur, I think, is you can sort of disappear into the crowd be you know the the agent of the gaze rather than the object of the gaze. Just sort of take it all in, go wherever you want, have a mostly um, unharassed experience of the city, and that's not what sort of the the female experience of the city has always been.
0: Which is a kind of a yeah. charged term right now, harassment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. Um, and and in writing the book, I. I actually began with this whole sort of treatise about street harassment in the introduction that included a, a sort of pro t- proto me too list of all the times when me or my friends had been attacked in the city. It was like a, you know, a, like a diatribe. And I ended up cutting it because it felt like, I don't know, that's not really what the book was going to be about. After all, like I wanted it to be a kind of celebration of the ways in which cities have been really creative places for women to engage with, not free from risk. And I think that's clear throughout the various chapters that there are women, you know, taking certain risks and engaging with the cities the way they do on foot. But yeah, I ended up not feeling like I wanted to have a big chapter about street harassment and and how horrible cities are for women because that's very you could just go on the internet and Google street harassment and you'll see a lot about that. But maybe there's this untold story, or now I've started trying to tell the story, of ways in which cities have been places of, you know, I don't know, creativity and like independence and, and self-actualization for women, in spite of the fact that there are also these sort of ways in which we're, the city doesn't open itself up to us the way it does for a male funnel
0: You talk about, just to quote you here, a determined, resourceful woman keenly attuned to the creative potential of the city and the liberating possibilities of a good walk. <laughs> and so that begs the question, what first of all, what is the creative potential of a city and what are liberating possibilities?
1: Hmm. I think the creative potential of a city probably depends on who you are and what kind of city you like. I, I am a native New Yorker and an adopted Parisian and so for me a city is really defined by, you know, as Jane Jacobs said in, in her sort of wonderful ode to, to the West Village, um, you need to have like the ballet of the sidewalk. Lots of people coming and going in a sort of, um, I don't know, improvised choreography. The sense that there's there's drama on the street and, mm. and we're all sort of taking part in it or we're keeping eyes on the street. And so there's there's a sense in which we're looking out for each other. So for me, I, I need to be in a city that has that kind of feeling too where people walking around there's lots of like shops and I don't know people idling people on the sidewalk it's hard to it's hard to describe what that kind of essential thing is that that makes a city creatively potent for me there are cities where I feel that less, um, and I didn't write about those those mm-hmm. in the book. But there are you know they're cities that you know like Los Angeles. I, I went to a really long time ago. I haven't been back in adulthood, but I'm really curious to get back to it because I remember feeling like it's just a, a car culture and it, it didn't interest me very much. Um, but I have a lot of friends who live out there and say like, you know there there is a way in which it it's so it's so atmospheric. There is this sense of like. You do need a car in certain places, and other places you don't. But even in the places where you have a car, like Will Self was telling me how much he loves to walk in LA, even though it's not a walking culture, it still has like something to it.
0: You right. talk about the creative potential mm-hmm. attuned to the creative potential of the city. Mm-hmm. Does that does that make you more creative, or what? What does it do?
1: I think that so cities, in in this sense of like potentiality, as being like a power contained in the city that you can tap into, and I think that it's not. Like I, As I was saying, like I could go to LA and not like tap into the creative potential of the mm. city. I think that I don't want to be really snobbish about you know, cities that I don't like because lots mm. of other people do. Like, like Tokyo, I write about um, really hating it at the beginning mm. and not seeing a way to, to tap into the creative potential of the city, not seeing a way to sort of connect up what makes me really excited to walk around or to read about the city's history or to write about the city or, or engage with it in some kind of creative way as a writer and a reader. That's how I engage creatively. Yeah. Um, but other people do. So it's a question of, yeah, whether or not cities can awaken that desire to create in us or whether or not we can understand how that city is powerful or, or yeah, I mean the Tokyo chapter really, it sits in the middle of the book and I wanted to, to include it because it, it seemed important to write about a city that was challenging for me to walk in. Not that I think it's challenging for everyone to walk in, but that when I got there, it was very surprising and disappointing and made a stark contrast with Paris, where the, which is the place that I love and where I would have preferred to stay. But for various reasons, I ended up going to Tokyo. And so I felt it was important to include the sort of narrative of how when I got there, I loathed it and I couldn't figure out a way to like enjoy it and it seemed like all around me all these other people were, were you know singing its praises like it's this great world capital and I was like it just seems so ugly and confining and um, impersonal yeah, yeah exactly but yeah. then by the end of the time that I spent there I, I sort of came to understand the ways in which the relationship I was in which was providing the framework both the reason for my being there and the frame through which I was seeing the city was really the thing that was holding me back and it was trying to see the world through my ex's eyes or through his sort of frames of reference that meant I couldn't sort of understand Tokyo or you know get to grips with Tokyo and as I drifted away from him and sort of focused on my relationship with the city I was a lot happier there and and got more into it so now I can't wait to go back to Tokyo.
0: So it's almost like uh, as you you're sort of breaking away from your ex you're able to fall in love with the city. Yeah, the, exactly. the next the, the the next guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I definitely have a, a that kind of relationship to cities. Or there was a period of time when it felt like I was married to Paris but I was cheating on Paris with London. Because mm-hmm. I would go to London, you know, every so often. And now I've just renewed my commitment to Paris and yeah, I've left lots of guys because they didn't want to live here, left here. Yeah, it's always been Paris over over a guy for a long time.
0: Flanner was born in uh, 19th century Paris uh, among the boulevards and arcades of Haussmann's newly redesigned city So what about Samuel Johnson and the poet, uh, I think it's Richard Savage, Mm -hmm. they used to go strolling all night long, all around London, all the time.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a specific history of fanerie in Paris that, you know, you can trace back to the arcades, even before the arcades, it really sort of gets codified at that moment um, in the mid-19th century, but that has to do a lot with the modernizing city and with the invention of spaces in which to walk, where you'd be safe from like horses and carriages and, and horse dung and people tipping feces out their window but yeah that that doesn't that doesn't mean that it hasn't existed in in other cities but that kind of strolling I think has its own flavor in London I mean I my it's not my field I don't know enough about London like before the 20th century. So it feels like the way that Paris is modernizing and creating these spaces for people to walk seems to coincide with the usage of the term flaneur and the term flânerie in, in really specific ways. But I don't know what, what the history of strolling is in London.
0: Yeah, This is another interesting point. With the flaneur, the crowd is his domain. He's a man of means and leisure, not involved. He's not involved. He's detached and perceptive, has a perceptive eye. So if the crowd is his domain and yet he's not involved and he's mm-hmm. detached, so how do you wed those two?
1: Yeah, this is this is going back to like the sort of paradox of modernity and what it is to be an individual in the city. Um, you see this in Georg Simile, you see it in Baudelaire, this sense of being being threatened by the anonymity of the city, you know, it's like this ocean that threatens to swallow you up. But then that also the same feeling that the city invites you to be very much yourself to be very much an individual. Zimmel writes elsewhere about fashion and the paradox of fashion being about having to fit in and, and, you know, be wearing what's what's fashionable, what's stylish, but also at the same time, the obligation to be like, to have your own style that's distinct from anyone else's. So I think that's sort of what Simmel and Baudelaire and and all these sort of 19th century or early 20th century observers of the city are picking up on the sense that you can feel very alone in the city and also be surrounded by people. It's it's less a question of um, reconciling these two ideas and more a question of, I don't know, accepting that that's, that's just what it means to live in a city, to always be alone, but to always be surrounded, or to feel part, as I wrote about in the George Sand chapter, of this like, these amazing moments of collective, whatever, collective revolt or collective rejoicing, that um, you're sort of irrevocably linked to other people in a way that you sort of aren't aware of when you're not in the in the sort of urban throng.
0: You grew up in the suburbs.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh,
0: <laughs> In Long Island, the suburbs are sort of the op- opposite of the city in that they're so homogenous mm-hmm. and car-oriented and strip malls. You basically like you mm-hmm. rebelled against that, but yeah. you just wanted to get the hell away from that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that is what sensitized me to the importance of the collective, the fact that I grew up in a place where everyone was atomized in their own little house And, you know, you just take the car from your house to school or, well, you take the bus from the house to school, but but your car to go shopping or your car to go wherever. Mm. Everyone's in their own little bubble with their own music playing or their own conversation. Um, No one takes public transport. There's much less of a sense of accidental encounters. You might run into someone you know, like at The Butcher. And I don't want to detract from the fact that, like, to the people who live in them, these do feel like communities. They're just different. Sorry, they're differently formed communities than what I have in the city. But it still felt to me like living in the suburbs was ultimately about living for yourself and your family and not really caring that much about the people around you. I think that's why in America you see, because most people live in suburban communities, you see... Mm
0: -hmm. To build your own castle. Yeah,
1: exactly. That, that, That sense of individualism that, like pioneering sense of like, I'm going to look after me and my family, and you know, fuck the other guy, this and why people throw themselves into the church, because the church is like where they have their community and they remember, oh, right, communities are great. We might be living in our atomized houses with our little cars taking us, protecting us from from the world, but actually it's really nice to come together in, in these ways. So I think that the way that people have, have patterned their lives in America, I find like really... It just wasn't it wasn't my cup of tea, and I think that it does lead to um, very questionable uh, Republican style um, individualism and a rejection of the idea that we need to look out for each other. There has, you know, the idea of the the social safety net. Um, I think is important to people on the left because people on the left tend to live in cities and are, you know, faced mm. with people's lives that are not like their own, and they're,
0: they're not, right in their face. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. on their doorstep. So I think
1: we feel we feel responsible for each other in a way that you can just forget about when you're coming and going between you know your home and your office and your car.
0: Yeah. Your father is an architect. Yeah. Did you absorb some of his appreciation for man-made surroundings?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I just have always been aware of the fact that the environment around me is built, was built by someone mm-hmm. like my dad. So I think when you come into the world or when your view of the world is shaped by that idea that things are constructed, It gives you a kind of obvious affinity for the built environment and an interest in the way that things are put together, but also a kind of built-in sense that like, there are people who determined that we should live this way, and they're fallible, and perhaps we can question them and think about other ways we might want to live.
0: Let's get back to masculine privilege. (laughs) This is probably the most quoted line from the book, as if a penis... (laughs)
1: Is that the most quoted line? I'm sure, yeah.
0: I've seen it quoted in almost every review. Really? Okay. (laughs) As if a penis were a requisite walking privilege like a cane. (laughs) You say that most French dictionaries don't even include flanness. Women were oppressed in cities. And one of the sort of definitions of of a flaneur is connected to invisibility and the fact that it was difficult for women to be invisible due to societal surveillance and street harassment. Mm -hmm. So when did all of that change then?
1: I think you start to see a really key moment of transformation towards the end of the 19th century with the rise of the department store, for instance, which is a key flashpoint in talking about Access to the city or visibility within the city, because, for instance, the sort of classical idea of the flaneur would have that he is distinct from the city and not uninvested, but that he's not taking part in it. He's an observer. He's definitely not shopping. He's not like out to acquire or to have sort of financial transactions. Um, he's not a dandy. He's not, you know, interested in having people be impressed by what he's wearing. He's like the epitome of almost the ghost in the city who slips by unnoticed. And then women, as they are sort of invited into the public sphere through the the rise of the department store, of the cinema, of sort of cafes where you could go, like tea houses, you know, mm. that were sort of, you know, there have always been cafes in Paris, but, you know, only a certain kind of woman would go and sit in one alone or with a man and drink or smoke. But so as, as that becomes more socially acceptable, you start to see just a a variety of different ways to engage with the city that are that to my mind are still are still kind of growing out of that the gaze of the flaneur the interest in what's happening what i'm trying to say is that there's this way in which the flaneur we think of as being there but unseen and definitely not like buying and selling and that women, once they've entered public space, are, are there because there are these new ways of buying and selling or these ways of consuming culture, taking part in culture, and they're being invited into that sort of urban spectacle in a way that allows them to be agents of the gaze as well as objects of the gaze. For me, it comes back to that John Berger quote, um, is it men act and women appear or women watch themselves appearing, that the privilege of the flâneur is that he's allowed to sort of be what he wants but women are slotted into one of two categories. Are you watcher? Are you being watched? Or are you watching yourself being watched? So it just becomes a lot more complicated, I guess, and and fraught for a woman in in public space um, than it is for a man. But I should say, I mean, sort of the thing that has me like bracketing in my mind, everything that I'm saying is that the, the flaneur himself, as I say in the book, is, how to say it, like, he's he's a cipher, He he's a figure who arises out of 19th century, like, newspapers, columns in newspapers, cartoons, novels, and he means something different to different writers at different moments. So there's, I think, like, the, the Balzac flaneur is, like, a desperate man, as well as an idle one. Flaubert's flaneur is, is very often the artist who's sort of, you know, out in the city, taking notes, and then going home to write his magnum opus. There is this sense that Baudelaire's Flaneur, who's the, you know the artist of modern life, who's, you know, Constantin Guise taking all of these, these notes and making all of these quickly drawn portraits, is not necessarily the same Flaneur who appears um, in different accounts over the course of like 100 years. So it seemed to me that the Flaneur himself was an unstable figure. We couldn't really agree on what he was. Therefore we couldn't say, there could be no female version of a flaneur because we didn't even know what we were negating anyway or, or mm. feminizing anyway. So it seemed much more useful to me to just cut the whole conversation about the flaneuse free from the idea of the flaneur and invent her as as, you know, her own sort of entity, like women walking in the city, women practicing flânerie would be a flaneuse. So it is a female version of a flaneau, but it's not a woman doing the things that a man does it's a woman doing the things that she wants to do in the city
0: Proust talks about the the, the female counterpart as the the passant
1: Yeah that's that's fine um and and you know worthwhile and interesting and everything but it, it's like what is she passing it still feels like it's rooted in Proust's perspective which is you know of course a, a masculine perspective mm. even if you know this idea of masculinity is itself unstable I don't mean to like conjure up Proust as like this stable Male watcher, but it's still a perspective other than the you know the woman isn't the passante like what is she passing like she's the she's the subject, not the the thing that you observe passing by something else. So I guess that's you know and it's kind of rooted in that Baudelaire poem a "Une passante." which mm-hmm. is very much about, you know, Baudelaire or the, his narrative double, like watching this mysterious woman, you know, come and go in the city. And she has no, he doesn't speak to her. She's just she's just in this, like, woman who mystifies him. She doesn't have any specific life of her own or or interior mind or whatever. It's funny, we're hearing so much about this New Yorker short story, Caperson. Have you read it? Mm-mm. It's worth looking at. Uh, it's It's kind of like written with incredible precision, but it's it's about sex from the perspective of this 20-year-old 20 20 year girl and how confused she is, and she's sort of, you know, I don't know, figuring things out for herself over the course of this encounter that she has with this guy. And a lot of people have, have been um, outraged by the fact that the guy has no, we don't know, she's sort of mean about him, she says some not nice things about his body and how, like, he's kind of a loser in certain ways. And people have said like this: She's so mean to this guy. This poor guy. And the BBC went and had like commissioned someone to write a satire from the guy's perspective. And it's like, but the whole point was that for once we had a perspective from a young woman's point of view. Mm -hmm. You just don't hear about that. Young women are the like
0: kind of an honest perspective too. Yeah, exactly. That that was well brutally honest. Mm Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. So we, we really didn't need the guy's perspective because we could just look at the history of Western literature for the guy's perspective. Mm-hmm. For once we had, you know, the women's perspective. So anyway, it's worth looking at that short story, I think, on this question. Mm-hmm.
0: Almost every conversation on the face of the planet these days includes Donald Trump in it. <laughs> so why don't we just look at the re- sort of reaction to Trump being uh, elected mm-hmm. and that huge women's march. Mm-hmm. They weren't really being Flanners, though. They had a, hmm. an objective.
1: Yes, definitely. So in my sort of reading of the flâners, I'm, I'm trying to push this idea, or not push it, but sort of explore all of the different implications for what it means to be a woman walking in the city. And I think a pretty far-out interpretation of it is political walking um, or walking in a group. So that the sort of idea behind the political march is visibility, this idea that we are going to manifest ourselves publicly and say, we are not Russian bots pretending to be Nebraskan housewives, we are people. This is any idea that we're marching in favor of, or we're or, or protesting this other idea about the way that we should live our lives. So it seems like with a political march, we're very far from the idea of the flaneur going for a stroll with nothing particular to do. But we are in the realm of flaneusery, which is women making themselves visible on the city streets. Think Taking can... back the streets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Reclaiming them. So I think that that's, that falls under the heading of the flaneurs is not just a female version of the flaneur. Sometimes when women walk in the city, it is with great purpose. There's a chapter on Martha Gellhorn towards the end of the book where she's walking around the streets of Madrid during the Spanish Civil War, interviewing people to hmm. say like, you know, what... She has in mind that she will write an article on the basis of what they tell her, but she's sort of getting a sense of what people are living through in wartime through that, that sort of act of flanissary or, you know.
0: So say she had an objective there, mm-hmm. so that's yeah, not really re- it's not really It's it, it is
1: because it's a woman out on the city streets, like, you know, tapping the creative potential of the city. So it's not that okay. flan- it's not what the flaneur does in that no. sort of classical sense. But I guess my argument is that if we can't agree on what the flaneur is doing because flaubert's artistic flaneur is like taking notes and then going home and writing his novel yeah. then i think it gives us not that we need permission but you know it gives us permission to open up the idea of what it can be to walk in the city mm-hmm. sometimes walking aimlessly in the city can turn into something else or can give you the material that you want to go and do something much more political or more artistic. So mm-hmm. yeah, I loved the Women's March. That was very exciting. Yeah, that's that, that was like it's the huge, apotheosis too. of mm-hmm. my book for me. It was like, look at these millions of women <laughs> yeah. walking in the city streets, telling this man, you know, we are watching you and we are here and one, one misstep and we'll be out here again. And, I mean, I don't know, I wrote an article about it for The Pool where I, I recalled the Women's March on Versailles, which was a real turning point in the French Revolution. I mean, the storming of the Bastille was fine, but they only f- saved, like, or freed, like, four or five people or something. But Stürmeng, uh, the storming of the Women's March on Versailles, <laughs> they ended up getting the Queen and the King to come back to Paris with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know... And to sign... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like... Let let us not underestimate. There's a quote from Flaubert that I use as the epigraph to one of the chapters. It's like forty thousand citizenesses could make the Hotel de Ville tremble. So yeah, Trump should reread, reread his Flaubert quote-unquote reread.
0: <laughs> well, they say black women mm-hmm. beat uh, Roy Moore.
1: Yeah, exactly. So. Thank thank you to them. Mm. Well, I guess Alabama thanks them, and then mm. and then the country as at one removed from that.
0: You intersperse opinion and experience, the opinion and experience of a sorority of flaneu- flaneu- flaneu-
1: flaneuses, flaneuses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> with uh, portraits of, among others, Jean Rise, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Virginia Woolf, Martha Galhorn as you mentioned, and George Sand. And with George Sand, she took to cross-dressing to aid mobility and invisibility mm-hmm. even though it was illegal mm-hmm. that's pretty uh, impressive commitment to, uh, <laughs>
1: to walking yeah yeah exactly she's amazing in the george sand in that george sand chapter because there are two of them mm. um i was trying to yeah get to grips with with sand as crossdresser and city walker in a way that didn't fall yet again into the trap of like oh george sand she liked to dress like a man and smoke cigarettes like the kind of myth of it you know affair with Chopin um, that we've seen in in a bunch of like movies uh, about her life. It just felt like because it was a chapter about revolution and I was trying to understand like the spirit of the streets of Paris that can make people just go from one day to the next, like doing their job to building a barricade. I was trying to understand the way that, that a very daily life of the streets can make you do things that you wouldn't normally do or take a risk that might seem um outsized to you so it felt important in getting to grips with sand as like a real flesh and blood person not just a myth to understand why like what was her physical experience of life in the city that led her to want to wear men's clothes and and do all of the other things that that she's so famous for doing so it, it felt like yeah it felt like the the walking and the wearing men's shoes were were really she says it herself they're they're tied together and that's what that kind of freedom that she's able to taste is what gives her even more of a taste to to take the risks that she takes in her life and in her writing.
0: So. I mean, homosexuality was illegal, mm-hmm. but I had no idea that cross-dressing was yeah, illegal. That's, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, yeah, you like, had to get like permission from the city if you wanted to wear trousers if you were a man. So, if you were a woman. Yeah, sorry, if you were a woman. <laughs> yeah. That's bizarre, isn't I it? I know, yeah.
0: Huh. And then, of course, there's uh, lower-class women prostitutes who who enjoyed a certain kind of invisibility.
1: But I think they even they were really circumscribed. I mean, so to go back just to this idea of how bizarre it was that um, it was illegal for women to wear trousers, this is a culture that has a lot invested in everyone, um, I mean, France still does, um, in everyone sort of performing their own gender role in a really circumscribed and socially approved way. So women had to be women and wear skirts and like it's just very confusing if they're wearing trousers like (laughs) uh, you know it's like threatening to the very fabric um, of french society so prostitutes again in in the 19th century start to be um tracked and registered assigned certain kinds of clothing and certain neighborhoods where they could you know for the ones that walked you could only like walk between here and here and but not like Get off your beat. So mm. there, there's this sense that there are certain parts of the city that are approved for loose women to wander. Red but light district. Couldn't, yeah, exactly. But mm-hmm. they couldn't just go wherever they wanted and they couldn't wear whatever they wanted. Mm. And they had to go regularly for their medical checkups. They had to be sort of registered in this book, which doesn't mean that there weren't women who were living off the grid. There were. But you know, mostly this, this idea of the prostitute is someone who um, had the run of the city by the 19th century, when the flaneur is really codified as a figure, she's also being codified as a very specific, her, her sort of freedom in the city is being, freedom, quote unquote, such as it was, is being corralled in a certain way. There are working women as well out on the city streets. I mean, when, when we talk about women not having the right to be alone on the streets, we're, we're talking about a certain kind of middle class or upper middle class woman um, who has a reputation to protect. Working class women, of course, also had reputations to protect, but they weren't as under threat from coming and going between work and home as you know a a middle-class woman you could look at i'm trying to remember the name of it there's a really wonderful george sand novel about these Lorette. they were called l-o-r-e-t-t-e um like kind of lower middle class or working class young women who worked as seamstresses or in factories and and were sort of like these I don't know, if you, you think of like the 1920s in Paris being full of these flappers or young girls who were sitting and smoking and drinking in the cafes, the Lorette or the Midinette or, or the version of that, you know, a hundred years earlier, who George Sand writes about in this novel that I'm totally blanking on. I think it has like a man's name, like Horatio, oh, Horace, that's it. It's yeah, Horace. well done. So anyway, they, they do exist, they are there, and they are worried about their reputations as well but they do have slightly more access to the city streets than women of a higher rank or something.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a lovely uh, incident you talk about referring to Virginia Woolf identifying Tavistock Hotel, Mm -hmm. the current Tavistock Hotel, as the place where Woolf entertained in her garden. Good flaneurs must bring a mind furnished with Literary and social history, with feeling for people and places of the past, Mm -hmm. and obviously a a good imagination too. It seems to me that you you had to you had to know the place Mm -hmm. before you could come up with with that vision or that Mm -hmm. that observation that describes what Mm -hmm. a flannery would do.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I sent so many years reading Virginia Woolf and and her diaries and her essays and, and obviously the novels that I had almost a kind of imaginary London in my mind as a result of that so you know spending time in in real London it's like you just go to your point of reference which is oh Tavistock Square of course this is where Woolf lived and where her building was bombed and she talked about In this letter to Ethel Smythe, seeing like the kind of outline of her living room where she had so many parties and wrote so many books with like the the facade torn off of it. So, yeah, I think there are these these images that you have just like indelibly marked in your mind. and, And that becomes almost the way that you see the city. Like through that lens, you know, mm. it's hard to go to Venice without a very specific idea of it from like movies and and um, books and and poetry. Mm. The um, Death in Venice, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We go Both to the Venice movie and, and the book. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We we just hear Mahler when we you know turn up in Venice, and it's very hard to get to the city like behind that or apart from that. But actually, maybe it's not that important to to see the. Re- I mean, this is this is what I wrote about in my Venice novel, um, the sort of attempt to like get off the beaten path as like ultimately impossible because the whole the whole city is one big beaten path and what does authenticity even mean in a place that's been so trodden and poured over and you know maybe maybe what is so wonderful about living in a city like that or visiting a city like that is enjoying the interplay of all these references and the fact that we hear Mallorro when we step off the boat
0: To be a good flaneur you need strong legs mm. erudition and as we said imagination and to, to be in touch with ghosts mm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the strong legs part, that's like, (laughs) not necessary. But I think you do need an active imagination. And and yeah, the willingness to see the city as more than just like, I think Jonathan Rayban makes a really nice distinction between the hard city and the soft city. The hard city being like the buildings and the bollards and the sidewalks and, you know, the stuff, the built environment. And then the soft city is what I was just talking about, like the fact that you, you see Tavistock Square through the lens of having read Virginia Woolf's letters and, and the sense that it's, it's a city built out of experience or, or affect, like a kind of affective engagement with the space of the city that is both created by the hard environment um, or the built environment, but also kind of goes beyond it and is changeable for you and, and different for me than it is for you. So, yeah, I think that that imagination or that kind of willingness to enter into the soft city is something that, Sadly, not everyone has. But I think, like, if it's suggested to them, they might say, "Oh, yeah, I guess there have been times when I've been daydreaming about this or that, you know, place in the city." So, yeah, I think we get stuck into the humdrum of everyday life, and it's very understandable that you know people are preoccupied with more more pressing uh, matters than just like what might have happened on this city street. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is something that that enriches your experience of the city and enriches that humdrum daily grind if you can tap into it.
0: I'm putting in mind of the Woody Allen movie about Paris. Mm-hmm. The, oh, was Midnight it? in Paris. Scott Fitzgerald? Yeah, Emily. yeah, yeah. Yeah, both of them. What do you think of that?
1: I have mixed feelings about that movie. It's definitely a feel-good movie. There, so in the opening sequence, there he's he shows like different spots in Paris. I think like sepia-toned with like a jazz soundtrack, and he's really he's he's just laying it out there. This is going to be a feel-good movie about like a mythic an engagement with the mythic whatever of Paris. Mm. But one of those early um, shots is of a movie theater at Odéon, and that's exactly the theater that I saw it in. So everyone in the theater went. Oh my God, it's us. Look, we're on the screen. It was such a weird meta moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, I kind of love that movie because I love Paris for a lot of the reasons that, you know, Owen Wilson's character in the movie loves Paris. But it's also just so, such a selective, irritatingly selective view of Paris. And, and you know, I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about Woody Allen in general since mm. we're talking about, you know, the harassment. context of harassment. Mm-hmm. And and I think his he's like... I mean worse than like merchant ivory ever has been in his like sycophantry of, of this is that even a word of like the wealthy um and I just never met anyone who who talks or behaves like that girl's family in in that film so mm-hmm. I don't know I, I have I have obviously really really mixed feelings about it but I think that you know the like flashbacks to to that imagined Paris of of the 1920s are are like really sweet and adorable so yeah they are nice moments but on the whole I find it suspect
0: well he got funded by the city of paris too yeah i'm uh, not I mean, surprised yeah yeah <laughs> you've researched women how women used cities as places of self-discovery not female version of the flanner as mm-hmm. we've talked about but more a uh, uh, subversive appropriation of urban space so how do you use a city to discover yourself
1: it's not so much a choice so much as you just realize you're doing it um but how could you use a city to, to discover yourself? It, I think it either works for you or it doesn't. I think there are you know, probably people living in cities that they don't particularly like and have no like, way of moving anywhere else. And like, I don't know, hopefully like, they can just make the most of it. But I, I, don't, I don't know, if you're not really inspired by a place, I don't know how you could use that place to, to discover yourself particularly
0: but if you are, mm-hmm. uh, inspired, then so how does that help you discover who you are?
1: I think there's something about the like inherent, inherent fragmentation of the city, of the experience of the city, the way it's, it's always different. There's always different things happening, different people coming and going. They can help you sort of confront the fact that we don't have unified selves. Like we ourselves are fragmented and different every day and, um, you know, we might have certain characteristics that carry us through our lives, but I find it very reassuring, for example, the way that things are always changing in a city. I I say that I get really like crotchety and like frustrated in a really like reactionary kind of way when I walk around Paris and I see the whole thing's becoming like a hipster fairyland and you're like enough with the metro tiles, enough with the Scandinavian wood. You know, I feel kind of nostalgic for the way it was, but at the same time, I, I take great Solace in the fact that things are changing all the time, and and that's true of the city, and that's true, you know, as Baudelaire said, of the human heart. Like he was lamenting the fact that the the form of the city changes more quickly than the form of the human heart. But there's that sense that we're we're all changing together, and even if things feel very bad. there's always the next day and there's always another version of you interacting with different people or different ideas or different books or different street in the city. Mm. So I'm not sure if that is a kind of guide to self-discovery or if it's just a a guide for coping, but maybe there's some relationship between coping and self-discovery.
0: It's funny listening to you speak there about change. It reminds me of the line about how men want women to stay the same <laughs> and women want men to, mm-hmm. to change.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Both both are, both are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: life could be meaningful even if it was unhappy.
1: Oh, right, yeah. That's the Reese chapter, I think. Yeah. So how, how did
0: this city help you to understand this?
1: Oh, God, that's so Paris-specific. And it's also really specific to being like 20 years old. Not that I, I've gotten over that like you know, taste for melancholy. But yeah, I think Paris is a city that, as I write about in that chapter, really, like, I don't know, kind of stokes a kind of melancholic reflection. And uh, where was it? It was in like The Guardian a couple of years ago or something. There was some sort of study that showed that French people were among the least happy in the world and France saw the saw that and like shrugged and they were like who says we have to be happy like why is happiness like the great goal mm-hmm. um, and I think you feel that living in Paris that you know mm-hmm. happy it sounds like something that like a children a child's word like happy happy like who wants to be happy well that's what America's <laughs> about isn't it? Yeah, the pursuit oh, of happiness yeah exactly yeah. but I think Paris is about the pursuit of like pleasure which you can you can hopefully access even if you're not particularly happy like a good bottle of wine or walking by the Seine has its own kind of melancholic pleasure even if you're feeling heartbroken or bereft obviously there have been times in my life where I've been you know out of my mind with grief and like walking in the street in Paris doesn't fix it so we're not talking about like the outer edges of despair but just a kind of post-breakup kind of melancholy, I think, is, is the kind of thing that Paris is like, it cradles. And it makes you feel like it's okay, and that's just part of what life is. Life doesn't have to be one long succession of happy moments.
0: Mm-hmm. That's about change, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 What's the difference between a voyeur and a flâneur?
1: <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know that there is much of a difference. I wrote an essay a couple of years ago, on how much I like to look in my neighbors' windows, um, and I don't think that there's anything necessarily creepy about that, as long as you're not, you know, doing it in some kind of sick way or like I'm filming them or, or I don't know. I have this wonderful book here. I can't really see it, but it's um, but it's um, all these amazing photographs of looking in. Um, yeah, that's it. Gail Albert Haliban of vis a vis. And it's all these really beautiful photographs of looking in oh, Croatian great? windows. Right. And she says in her introduction that she's like a happy a happy voyeur or something. Like she's not she's not trying to be a deviant or, or you know, take she's, advantage she's of that. She's them. not
0: getting a sexual thrill off it. Yeah, but... exactly. She's mm. just
1: like a she's curious. Yeah, exactly. She's curious and she's she has a goodwill towards these people and I think actually they're, um, these are, these were, what's the word? Staged. Like these people know Mm -hmm. that they're, Mm -hmm. they're being photographed. Um, but it does, you know, it's, it's a very Parisian sort of thing. This vis-a-vis, like we have a -a vis-a-vis you see across the courtyard to those people. Mm -hmm. They always watch television on their massive, like big screen TV. And it's really (laughs) weird. So I never see them. I only see their TV. Um, But, yeah, I like that it's about companionability in the city. So I think, you know, voyeurism, it gets a a bad rap.
0: (laughs) Hmm. It reminds me of Rear Window, the Chris Right,
1: exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. Just got a few more questions for you. From architecture to literature to art, maleness is coded into the urban fabric. It's built for the height of men, not Mm -hmm. women. Uh, And women aren't allowed to make eye contact. Don't talk back. It's not safe. That sort mm-hmm. of covers uh, mm-hmm. what we were talking about, mm. but uh, it's it's still it's not you're saying that women now have sort of taken back the streets, but it's it's still not safe,
1: no, no, that's true. We can take back the streets like for a night, <laughs> and yeah. then the next day it goes back to being as it was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, a lot of people have asked me since the book came out like well what can what can we do like how can we Make the city our own. How can we make the streets our own? I really don't know what to tell them. All all I can say is I think it's awful that like women have to bear the responsibility for for um, making sure they stay safe. That we have to like install apps on our phone to let our friends know we've gotten home, or carry around mace, or or you know clench our keys in our hand. Mm. I think that's ridiculous, but, you know, I'm not sure there's anything we can do other than take these measures to protect ourselves. I think we, all we can do is talk about it and, like, raise awareness about it in the city. So
0: You talk about uh, women being um, emotionally bound up in everything. What oh, mean?
1: what do you mean? Where do I say that? Uh,
0: for, for, for women, perhaps, walking in a city is being emotionally bound up in everything, a place to prove independence, I'm not sure where Could, that comes from, yeah. but it's you did say that.
1: Yeah, I think probably what I meant is that there's we have something at stake walking in the city, and maybe sometimes we take it for granted. And but you know, very quickly if you're just sort of going about your business, um, someone will inter intervene in your in your bubble and make you aware of the fact that the city is not for you, um, the street is not for you. Uh, that it's for them or for their show of power, mm. um, and yeah, I think that it's it's very difficult not to be, on some low level, bound up emotionally with the environment when you feel that there are people who want to sort of take your, I don't know, burst your bubble or or, or threaten your safety or remind you of where you are on the on the on the in the hierarchy of the street.
0: Uh, I know we've talked a lot about. Uh, being a flaner, but but how do you flan a city? <laughs> like, how would you go yeah. about, you know, if someone's listening to you and you get mm-hmm. excited about the concept, so how do you yeah. go about doing that? Well,
1: I think there are probably two main schools of thought. One would be the kind of wandering at random um, school of thought. The other would be this kind of situationist style derive where you, or drift, where you you could sort of drift aimlessly, or you could set yourself a course. Where you say, "I'm going to turn right every every third right, and then every second left, and go in every shop that has an X in the in the title, or something like that." You could make it really planned. Or like Ian Sinclair did this sort of um, in London orbital. He walks around the um, the ring road. Okay, is it the M twenty five? There's a big ring road around London, and he walks it. Um, Will Self sort of directed walk from Heathrow to J- his, his walk from London to New York City where he walks to Heathrow and then he walks from JFK to Manhattan so I think that that those are more structured experiences of Flanning in the city but I think they're still like even if you put a shape around it you're still opening yourself up to everything that could happen you know all of the things that ways that you could but you know the, what's city, the built happen, environment right? yeah exactly. you can structure it to some
0: extent, but yeah,
1: and then you're leaving the rest up to chance, but then then you're filling in that blank with like whatever whatever there is to see or to look at or to to notice, and I think both Ian Sinclair and Will self are thinking about these 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 kinds of structured walks as um as like a form of social critique or you know capitalist critique mmm
0: so, what about taking photographs of stuff you see? Is that part of it? Yeah, I, I do that. Um, mm.
1: I'm I'm a big fan of um, photographing the city. I have an Insta- Instagram account, and, and I think that mm. having Instagram actually and this little camera on my phone has has made me a better um, flaneuse. Like it's it's made me that much more attuned to the environment and to interesting like places and and. Mm. People and I don't know, just like corners mm-hmm. or, or buildings that have something written on them. Mm. Um, it's the sense of like that would make an interesting photograph or, you mm. know, that would be interesting to show people.
0: Well, that's um, the thing about Instagram. Mm-hmm. It is showing other mm-hmm. people, isn't it? You're yeah. not just taking these photographs for yourself. Yeah. You're sharing with other people. Yeah, exactly. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's just another form, I think, of being an artist flaneur or an artist Flanagan. What about other
0: contemporary writers? Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. Will Self mm-hmm. and Ian Sinclair. Anyone else that's sort of uh, in the field?
1: I'm trying to think. There's there's a lot, but I'm I'm sort of blanking on them. Mm, okay. I have a good footnote. I'll refer to my footnote. This is actually meant to be in the introduction, and then. It was, it's just a list of names, and so my editor made me cut it. And I said, okay, but I'm keeping it as a footnote. So I'll read it. It's, sure. I counter Guy Debord with his ex-wife, Michelle Bernstein. I counter Ian Sinclair with Rachel Lichtenstein. She's great. Will Self with Laura Oldfield-Ford. Nick Papadimitriou with Rebecca Solnit. Teju Cole with Joanna Kavana, Kavana, sorry. But Patty Smith, Adrian Piper, Lisa Robertson, Faiza Again, Janet Cardiff, Yoko Ono, Laurie Anderson, Vivian Gornick, Lavinia Greenlaw, Amina Kane, Chloe Regis... Atiyah Fizey, Heather Hartley, Wendy McNaughton, Daniel Dutton, Jermaine Krull, she's no longer with us, but the rest of these people are contemporary. Valeria Luiselli, Alexandra Horowitz, Jesse Fawcett, Virginie Despentes, Kate Zambrino, Joanna Walsh, Eliza Gregory, Annie Arno, um Sandra Cisneros. Anyway, it goes on and on. Yeah, yeah. You Rachel Whiteread, she's also really wonderful. Um, I think that's it for the the living people.
0: <laughs> That'll do. Uh, and these are mostly writers and artists. And, writers and artists, yeah. yeah. Just finally, um, you are going to Liverpool.
1: Um, I moved part time to Liverpool last year because I took up a post at the university um, and hated it, <laughs> so I quit. No, I didn't. It's lovely. Liverpool is lovely, and the university is is um, fine. But I I didn't like having a full time teaching job because it left me no time to write. Um, but my partner still teaches at Liverpool, so we will be back up in the north of England in like late January of next year.
0: And what was it like to be a, a Flanners in Liverpool? What, what did you come across?
1: Um, I came across a lot of drunken men <laughs> at all times of day. Um, a lot of really angry people, um, but also uh, I think Liverpool is a city that more because perhaps because it's smaller and because there's um such a striking amount of georgian architecture it really makes you wonder like what are these buildings how did they get there like who paid for them um and liverpool has um kind of a redoubtable history as being one of the major um slave trading ports and there's a wonderful slavery museum in liverpool that that sort of details this history and and um it's, it's one of the like places that children in Liverpool get taken on field trips so that it sensitizes them to their environment. That said, you know, my where I was teaching at the University of Liverpool was in one of these Georgian mansions that was built by someone who got rich off the slave trade. And I said to my students one day, like, for example, we're sitting in the mansion of a major slave trader. And they were like, "What?" like, no, really? And they're sort of looking around going like, oh, suddenly all this like, lovely Georgian ornamentation starts to feel like suspect. Mm. So I think because it's smaller and because it's more, um, unified in its architecture and its history more so than Paris, I think Liverpool sort of makes you go like, okay, there's like one particular way of, um, enslaving people and, and oppressing them that resulted in this city looking the way it does. So yeah, it's really it's really instructive. I mean, obviously you can go to Paris and go to London and, and think about the ways in which these are beautiful cities that were built on the backs of, you know, the poor and the enslaved, but Liverpool is a city that like really makes you think about that. And now Liverpool 1, do you know about Liverpool 1? It's like massive mall in the center of the city. It just yeah, it, it takes this conversation about who's getting rich off the backs of whom in in a in a totally different direction. It's like
0: also troubling. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk today.
1: Oh, sure. Thanks Thanks for coming over to my house in Belleville.
0: I've been speaking with Lauren Elkin, who is, among other things, the author of Flaneurs, Women Walk the City in Paris, New York, Tokyo, Venice, and London, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in the United States.
1: And Shadow and Windus in the UK.
0: And what about Canada? Who is it? Oh, is it it's Penguin? not.
1: Yeah, because there wasn't a specific Canadian deal, so I think it's just. I'm not sure if it's the UK publisher who distributed it there or the American one, but yeah. Okay. I don't know why they didn't make a specific deal with Canada.
0: It's, it's the story of our our lives.
1: Really? No. <laughs> anyway,
0: thanks again. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Thank, thank
1: you.